0: We've been speaking over the past few weeks about moving forward, progressing towards our eternal goal. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how we are to look backwards to move forward, and how important it is that we take some time to evaluate our recent past and learn from that, and how important it is that we look backwards in our path forward. Last week, we talked about how we live in the moments of life, good and bad, and how we move forward by living through one moment at a time. And we focused last week on how do we live successfully in the moments. The word successfully was an important word because as we define the moment successfully, we learned that success doesn't always mean personal happiness and comfort. Success in the moments isn't just being happy in the moment, even though I have no problem with being happy in the moment. I prefer to be happy in the moment. I prefer that over being unhappy in the moment. How many elders here would prefer to be happy in the moment? Yeah. But if we make our definition of successful moments and happiness, we are putting ourselves up for deception and we are allowing ourselves to be an easy target of the enemy. So when we define life's moments as being successful, we have to do what Paul did. Paul's moments were not always happy moments, were they? We talked about how he suffered and how he was persecuted more than any other. But yet, he was a godly man more than any other. We asked last week the question, do life's moments define our future, or does our future define life's moments? Remember that question? Do life's moments define our future? Or does our future define our life's moments? Well, the answer to that is very important to our continuing discussion today. As today, we're going to talk about pressing on toward our future goal. That having the answer, the right answer to that question is very important. And the answer is, basically, it depends on what your future goal is. It depends on what your future goal is. If your future goal is heaven or hell, it makes a big difference on the answer to that question. But the reality is both heaven and hell are both unseen and eternal. Both unseen and eternal. Both are coming. Both are coming. You and I this morning have the choice because we still have breath to make the choice of which is our destination. Is it heaven or is it hell? So the answer is, by fixing our eyes on the unseen eternal things, we are enabling the future to define our moments. By fixing our eyes on Christ, by fixing our eyes on the cross, by fixing our eyes on heaven, which is, for most of us, way out there, We don't even really see heaven in our immediate future, do we? No, because we're so busy living, which is a good thing. But heaven is there. By fixing our eyes on the unseen eternal things, we are enabling the future to define our good and our bad moments. Because we live in both, good and bad. We must have a good biblical understanding of heaven and what hell are all about. We must understand them. You must understand heaven and hell. They come hand in hand. You can't have heaven without hell. And if we have a misunderstanding of either one, then it can impact our intentionality of living in the moments. For those that really don't understand what hell is all about, if they think hell is a party... it's a good time that we're all going to go with our buddies and drink ourselves into oblivion and we're just going to be all good time well then maybe living to you is different but if we understand that hell is not a party hell is fire and brimstone and eternal punishment separation from god and everything good not just for a short time but for eternity can we grasp the fact can we even begin to grasp it eternity in hell can I grasp eternity in heaven do we know what heaven is really about do we really understand heaven we have to understand these things if we really want to know how to live in the moments and how to press on into the future then we must have a good understanding of both of our destinations and what I mean by this is that the world is going to get harder folks Can I say that? The world is going to get harder. It's going to spin more quickly out of control. It is not going to get better. It is not going to turn into utopia. It is not going to turn into paradise by itself. Understand the Bible says that the hell, that that earth and everything in it is going to be laid bare. It's not going to get better by itself. Our new age people like to think differently. Our new age people and our and many of our false religions like to think that no heaven or earth is getting better. Heaven is just going to become on earth, and we're just going to become better people. It's not true, and I don't say that to be depressing. I don't say that to take away anyone's joy. I don't say that for that. I'm just saying it be truth to be truthful and to be op- so that we can openly and honestly discuss what it means to move forward, what it means to count the cost what it means to have joy in the moments because when we know our eternal destination if we focus it on jesus and on heaven then everything else in life takes on a whole different meaning so living for jesus can i say this living for jesus is absolutely the best choice anyone can make it is absolutely the best choice anyone can make it's not necessarily going to make your life easy it's not going to make your life easier necessarily but it's going to make it worthwhile. It's going to make it worth it. It is going to take all of the bad moments in life and it's going to paint them with a picture of eternity in heaven. And all of a sudden, then the moments that are so depressing and so daunting in us right for us right now are going to just kind of have a whole different perspective, because we're going to see them in the guise of heaven. I want to talk about three basic and important elements this morning of moving forward. We're talking about moving forward today. We're talking about pressing on to the future in the cost and in the joys. Three basic elements. Number one, we need to understand the potential, the potential of the heavenly reward. And number two, we must count the cost to get there. And then number three, we must determine in our hearts to press on to press on in the moments of living. Our text for the day is Philippians chapter 3 beginning at verse 12. A very familiar text. One that we've read quite a bit and one that you maybe even have memorized. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12. Not, this is Paul speaking to the Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. But I, Paul, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of it, of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, and we, God, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, I pray that you be with the words that I speak, and I pray, Lord, that they're your words, inspired by you. Lord, I pray that the hearts and ears would be open to hear them. And I pray, Lord, that the distractions of life would leave us for a few minutes as we study your word and as we learn of you today. Help us, Father, to understand what it means to press on, to press on. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, understanding the potential of the heavenly reward. The goal of heaven, if we really understand what heaven is about, is untold beauty, untold peace, untold happiness, fulfillment, perfect, loving. I mean, I, you cannot describe, you cannot say a word in a human language to comprehend what heaven is all about we 've studied it for a number of weeks over the past Wednesdays a few for, for those of us that came in on Wednesday nights, and we understood and we tried to grasp the the completeness of heaven, and we fell far short, but yet we had lots of fun trying. I love talking about heaven, I love talking about heaven, you cannot overthink heaven, you cannot spend too much time thinking about heaven. you cannot become earthly invaluable you cannot have you cannot become earthly um, so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly value when you think about heaven because when you really grasp heaven when you really understand what heaven's about it makes you heavenly it makes you earthly relevant our motto our, our, our our mission statement to be heavenly minded through earthly relevance you cannot be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly value if you truly understand what heaven's about Heaven is something that you can spend all your days on. You can can never over-imagine it. Heaven is so grand. Heaven is so good. Heaven is so amazing that you cannot over-emphasize it. You cannot think about it too much. You cannot speak about it too much. I could go on and on and on like this for the rest of the sermon and never speak too much about heaven. But yet, is it possible that for many of us that heaven is misunderstood is it possible that maybe we don't grasp heaven for what it really is and therefore we don't make it our goal with intentional living like we should can we marginalize heaven can we say heaven is going to be boring can we say heaven is for the old people to think about not for us young folk and I'm a young folk here and so are you if you think that way Can we miss the point? Let me ask you some questions. Is heaven really a goal for you today? Is heaven something worth living for? Is heaven something worth dying for? Is it so important to you that it preoccupies your mind and your thoughts and your actions? Or is it something that will come... Into more importance, the closer you get to death. Like Grammy. Yeah. Janine's grandma passed away a, couple, a week and a half ago, 93 years old. Bound and determined to get to heaven, wasn't she, Janine? Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to get to heaven. Listen, I'm 56 years old. I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait. It doesn't make any difference how old you are. You should have an anticipation and say, I can't wait to get into heaven. I can't wait. Or is heaven just a better choice than hell? Because you don't want to go there. You see, when we get a grasp of the passion that Christ has for us to be in heaven, it helps us to be able to press on toward the future. It helps us to be able to, to press on in the hard times of life, the doldrums of the day, or the travesty of an unsuspecting death, or a job loss. Heaven. Heaven. It has to be such an important element of your life. It has to be so much of a firm resolution for you and a desire for you to learn more about heaven, for you to grasp it and to to groan for heaven. It has to be that much a part of your life. It has to be so important for you to make heaven your end destination if you're truly going to be able to press on in your Christian walk. Without having heaven as an end destination, then one truly cannot live in the daily moments of life with the purpose that we must have. You will flounder. You will will be up and down. You will be a topsy-turvy. Life will knock you all over the place if you cannot grasp eternally what heaven's about and that that is your end goal. We will spend eternity one of two places. The reality is eternity is coming. The reality is eternity is coming whether we feel like it or not. Whether we agree with it or not, eternity is coming. The only choice we have today is where will I spend it? I can't stop it. I can't delay it. My only choice is am I going to spend eternity in heaven or am I going to spend it in hell? There's no third place. There's no just roaming the earth as a ghost. There's no living any place else. You will either be in heaven or in hell. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Am I prepared? Have I chosen? Have you chosen your destination today? Have you chosen it? Do you know where you're going to spend your eternity today? You see, we have to have the promise of the potential of heaven as the first element on pressing on. The second thing we need to do is we need to count the cost. We need to count the cost to get there. Jesus said that, actually. Jesus used the terminology, count the cost. You see, the gift of salvation is free. It's absolutely free. I can't earn it. I can't do anything to gain salvation other than, in fact, accept a free gift. It's a free gift. But even though the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation, the gift of heaven is a free gift, it comes with a great cost. It comes with a great cost. Isn't that interesting to think that something free comes with a great cost? Confusing, maybe. Jesus wasn't afraid to tell people that the gift of eternal life comes with a cost, with a great cost. And if a person isn't willing to examine the cost and determine in his heart that this gift of eternal life is worth the cost, then he really can't accept the free gift. If you don't understand the cost, you can't accept the gift. Luke chapter 14. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Now listen. We're going to talk about some things here in this next few passages that it may seem a little confusing because maybe you don't know what it's like to build a tower. And maybe you don't know what it's like to go in, in, into battle against a big, a big army, all right? But let's read this. Let's not be confused by this. Let's read it and let's come back and understand what Jesus is talking about, okay? All right, let's just read the word. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. The cost is amazing. The cost is everything, yet it's a free gift. Because I can't earn it. I, can't, I don't deserve it. I just accept it. And then, when I accept it, then I have to give up my life as the cost. See, Jesus never intended this passage to be a stumbling block to people, He didn't mean this to be a stumbling block to the sinner and a reason why they shouldn't accept His sacrifice. Rather, what he was doing is that he was laying a proper foundation, a proper expectation of the life ahead so that there would be less confusion when the hard times of life come. So that the hard moments of life, when they come to the person, that they wouldn't be so apt to get confused and to be able to detour the person because that person needed to understand up front, up front, there's a cost to accepting the gift of life. Jesus didn't say, Follow me, and I'm going to make your bed of life roses. He didn't say that because then, when the hard times come, they would have said, Jesus, you lied to me. You told me life was going to get easy. No, He didn't. He never said that. He said life was going to get harder. But it's going to get worth it. It's going to get worthwhile more, more worthwhile because of what you're doing. I'm just telling you, you have to count the cost. We make, in our good intentions of trying to save the world, we want to make salvation really easy. And indeed, I'm going to say something confusing, and indeed it is easy, but it costs me everything I have. Come on, somebody agree with me. Somebody that's been down the road with me, under, tell me, yes, it costs you everything you have. But when you are sold out to Jesus, life isn't hard. It's only when I don't sell to Jesus that I want to try to get what I'm, I'm trying to live on both sides of the fence. How many have been there? How many know that's not good and you're growing when you're living on both sides of the fence? It hurts when you fall off. I've been there too. I like this side a lot better. I like being on the side of the fence to say, I don't, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of living for him. I'm not ashamed for doing the things that I know are right, even though they may not be popular. I'm not ashamed of that anymore. There was a time where there was for me. And maybe there's a time for some of us here or somebody listening here that it may be you're still struggling in that time of your life. Well, can I tell you what? It's not worth it to struggle that way. It's not worth it to live a life on the fence. It's only worth it when you get off the fence. C.S. Lewis is a great author. Anybody read C.S. Lewis? Lewis? One One of my favorite books is the book that he wrote, Mere Christianity. And he says this about counting the cost of being a Christian. When I was a child, I often had toothaches, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least, not until the pain become, became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. Now, if I may put it, if I may put it that way, Our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some peculiar sin, particular sin, which they are ashamed of or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment." That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whenever, whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is, he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and this I will do but I will not do anything less. Wow, what a great understanding of what it means to count the cost. Because when you say yes to Jesus, he's not saying yes halfway. He's saying, guys, you're in. I'm in for it all. I want all of you now. I'm not in just to relieve the toothache for the night. No, I want to get to the core problems of your problems. I want to get to the sin problems. I want to get to the sin of your life and I want to make you perfect. And it's going to take some work. And you're going to suffer because it's going to hurt as I get in your life and I get in and make the changes in your life that need to be changed. Are you willing? Is that what you want? Are you willing to give me that ability to do that? because if you're not then I can't be your I cannot be your lord. We want our savior but we don't want the lord part. We we want to be saved but we don't want him to be the lord of our life. We just want our toothache to be dulled. But we really don't want him to be the lord of our life. When he becomes the lord of my life, you know what? He changes me. He changes me from the inside out and it hurts. It's not always fun. It's painful. But when He becomes the Lord, He owns me. I'm not my own anymore. I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. Only because He changed me, because I allow Him to. There's a cost. There's a cost. And if we don't understand that, then we won't really be able to understand the gift. There's a cost to living for Jesus. And if I don't understand that, then there's going to be many other things in life that I'm not going to understand. If I'm going to try to live a Christian life without being willing to bear the cost, then life is going to be very confusing and frustrating for me. Many will fall away, blaming God because he's trying to make us perfect and we don't want to be perfect. We just want our toothache dulled. But he's saying, no, I want to set your teeth. I want to give you a perfect smile. I want to take that crookedness out of your smile, and I want to do the teeth work that I need to do, and it's going to hurt. And you're saying, no, 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 I just want the toothache to go away. And he's going to say, well, I'm not into that. I'm not into doing that. Jesus says, I want all of you. Are you willing to count the cost? See, and here's the problem with that kind of thinking. As a result, as a result, there will be many, many, many half-hearted Christians that will push God away after he begins the purification process, saying that they've had enough and they're comfortable in their half-hearted experience. And that brings Matthew chapter 7, which is I believe one of the scariest passages in the word. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Those are the people and there's going to be many of them. It says it right here. It says it right here in God's word. There will be many will say to me that day, there will be many people that will come with a toothache that just want the toothache dulled. They want the Savior experience, but they don't want the Lord experience. This morning, do you want the Lord experience? Is that what you want? Because if you don't want that, this is your passage. This is where you'll be. Right here, this is you right now. This is you. If you're not making Jesus Christ Lord of your life in every aspect, in your business, in your schoolwork, in your homework, in your marriage, if you're not making him the Lord of everything, he's not the Lord of anything. Wow. It's time that we read, learn, and apply the word of God. It's time that we learn it, we read it, and we apply it. Anything else in that is going to be short of the goal. And when I am convinced of the eternal glories, when I'm convinced of that, all of a sudden life takes on a new meaning. You see, we can become disillusioned with Christianity when life gets hard. We can become disillusioned when the pain of the sacrifice comes. When all the problems don't go away, we can become disillusioned. In every good intention, we can become disillusioned. Even Peter was. Even Peter. Peter, walking with Jesus. Jesus was walking with his disciples one day, and he was telling them about what's going to come to him. He's telling them that I am going to have to suffer at the hands of people. I'm going to be be rejected by the leadership of the Jewish people. I'm going to be killed. He's describing to them the end of his life. Basically, he's describing to them the road of salvation. But Peter, Peter said a different, he had a different anticipation. Peter had a different perception of this. Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. I'm not sure what he said, The Bible doesn't say what Peter said. He just said he went to rebuke Jesus. And this is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Here's Peter, who just a few passages before was, Jesus said, "Who who am I? Who do the people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. So just a few passages before, Peter recognized Jesus as being Christ. Now Jesus calls Peter Satan. Why? He said, You do not have in mind the things of God, Peter, but the things of men. In your good intentions, Peter, understand. See, Peter could not appreciate the Messiah as having to suffer. He couldn't see that the Messiah would have to be rejected by men. He couldn't see that the Messiah would have to be killed. He was disillusioned. Therefore, he was thinking the way men think. Men think the Messiah is going to reign on high and life is going to be good. Likewise, me and you as Christian people, maybe we don't understand the real life of a Christian. Maybe we're disillusioned. Maybe because we have our minds set on the way men think about what we think a Christian should be. And a Christian should be happy-go-lucky, prosperous, name it, claim it, totally healthy all the time without a problem in life. That's kind of what Peter was thinking about Jesus. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of God in mind. Now, I am not at all indicating that we can't be prosperous. I am not at all indicating that we can't have the good things of life. I'm just saying that if that becomes my definition of Christianity, then the devil has got me. And I truly haven't accepted the gift. So I have to understand what it really means. It will be worth it in the end, but we must first recognize the true cost of the free gift. It'll be worth it, but I must recognize the cost of the free gift. Yet, yet, there are, there are going to be those that give up in the battle because they weren't properly trained and prepared for battle. What we're doing right now is that this is a training lesson. This is training ground for those that are in the battle of life. And that's all of us. Whether you like it or not, you are you are in the army. And you are in the battle. And if you aren't properly trained, then you're going to lose. So what we're doing right now is that we're getting into God's word and we're properly training each other. for the, We're training ourselves for the battle. That's what we're doing. It may not be good. It may not be what you like to hear, but that's what we're doing. So what are the pitfalls... What are the pitfalls of improper training? What happens to people that aren't properly trained? Well, first of all, they're probably not going to understand the cost of accepting the free gift. They're probably not going to understand that. Many will fall into taking the easy road and never face the reality of what it really means to, to live a life of holiness and the personal demands holiness requires. Therefore, they make up their own rules of godly living, falling short of living an obedient life proven by living to godly standards empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, if we're not properly trained, we'll make up our own rules. We'll make our own religion. We'll make it sound the way we want to make it sound because it's easy to live in in the moment. We'll deaden the pain of the toothache. The reality of God's word is different. different. The reality of God's word says, "Ah, if you go there, this is what's going to happen to you. Again, Matthew 7. Jesus was hard in this Matthew chapter 7 stuff. Beginning at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. See, this passage is telling us That more people will end up in hell than in heaven. That's what it said. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Which one are you? Which one am I? What road am I on? What road are you on? What does the wide gate and a broad road mean? Well, the wide gate and a broad road is symbolic for easy teaching that many people want to hear today. It's symbolic for trying to get God's word lined up in a way that I can live in it without getting my toes stepped on. We talked about in Sunday school a little bit, how easy. Because God's word is a living word, it's easy to misconstrue it. It's easy to take it out of context. It's easy to take a passage to prove the thing that I want God to prove in my life without looking at the context of God's word and really knowing what it means. This is the itching ears syndrome that we're warned about by Paul in 2 Timothy 4. 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear you know isn't it interesting here that both of these passages have a common element here when it comes to numbers of people involved both passages talk about many people and many teachers it's almost like if enough people are doing it it'll be right the majority wins if everybody's doing it how can it be wrong That's the worldly perspective of things. That's how the world wins people over through mass media. If everybody's having sex, girls and boys, then it must be okay. If everybody's doing this, then it must be okay, because how can so many people be wrong? Well, the Bible isn't motivated or isn't changed by majority rule. God is not a democracy here, He's not looking for your vote. He's not looking to see is this going to be popular with people or not. No, he's looking and saying this is my word and only a few are going to line up to it. Even though it's not his will. Even though his will is that all men would line up to it. Now what does the small gate and the narrow road mean to us? Well, the small gate and the narrow road indicates that there are only a few people in our world today that really want to know The truth. There's only a small number and guys as days go on that number is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. The Bible says that as the day gets worse there's going to be more and more people that are going to go to the itching ears because it's popular because it's easy but can I tell you the disaster is coming destruction is coming eternity is coming see man's Standards would have this passage say this. They would rather it say, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to life, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to destruction, and only a few find that. See, that's what our society would like to see. Our society says that everybody goes to heaven. Only the really, really bad people go to hell. Only the Hitlers go to hell. Only the mass murderers go down. But everybody else, ah, nah. Hey, you're good, man. You're good. You're, you'll make it. You make it. You believe in Jesus. Oh, you'll make it. See, they're not counting the cost. They're not counting the cost. John chapter fourteen tells us that love and obedience work hand in hand. Love and obedience work hand in hand. Jesus said this. John chapter fourteen, verse twenty three. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own; they belong to the Father who sent me <laughs> it 's very simple. Jesus is so simple, it comes right to the right right to the root. If you love me, you 'll obey me, and if you don 't love me, you won 't obey me. Your choice my choice basically the Holy Spirit will take residence in the life that obeys Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes residence in the life of the person that is obedient. And if you're not obedient, the Holy Spirit isn't in your life. If you're not obedient, if you've got something you're holding on to, if you've got a pet little sin, you've got a pet little device over here, if you're not obedient, you're not loving God. If you're not obedient, the Holy Spirit does not live in your life, no matter what you want. No matter how bad you want him to be there, he cannot coexist with disobedience. The love of God does not override that. Disobedience and obedience are two separate things. <laughs> I'm either going to obey or I'm going to disobey. And the Holy Spirit lives in the lives of those that obey. They are the ones that are the child of God. Anyone else is an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. But if I obey him, if I love him, he takes residence in my life. He lives in me and the Holy Spirit lives in me. So, number three, how do we press on? Determining in my heart to press on toward the eternal home of heaven in the moments of life. How do we do this? How do we press on towards the goal of eternal living in the moments of everyday living that can be hard, boring, mundane, or awesome? Sometimes awesome is harder to live for Jesus in the hard times. Think about it. Sometimes when life is so good, so good, I'm so blessed that I have a harder time, depending on Jesus, for my sustenance, sometimes I need the hard times to come into my life because then it makes me know I have to depend on Christ. We have to go back to our text. Paul tells us how to do this, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at it, my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Understand, Christ took hold of you first. (laughs) He, he, He offered himself to you first. He's the one that saved you in the first place. I didn't save myself. He saved me. Therefore, my fight is in his hands if I allow him to fight for me. I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not living it on my own. I'm doing it because he chose me. And he chose you. Like he chose Paul on the road to Damascus. He went down and he apprehended Paul, and he he physically apprehended Paul. That's what Paul's talking about here, that Christ Jesus took hold of him, physically took hold of Paul. Well, you know what? He's done the same thing for you and I. Maybe not on the road of Damascus, but in your crisis point that you had to come to to accept Jesus Christ when you did, there was a crisis point that had to happen for you to accept Christ. At that moment of that crisis point, he accepted you, he reached out, he took you, and he's holding you in his hand. And he has you firmly grasped in his hand, if you will so allow it. And then he goes on. How do we press on? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. In other words, I have not already obtained it. I am not at the end all. Paul is saying, I have still more to learn. I have more to glean. I have more to grow into this Christian life. I have not obtained it all. And if Paul is saying that, then how much more do I need to say that? <laughs> Paul wrote the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if Paul says there's more to, le- to learn, then I must understand that there must be more to learn as well. I must re- remain a teachable person. Matthew Henry says in a commentary, The best men in the world will readily own their imperfection in the present state. We have not yet attained, are not already perfect. There is still much wanting in all our duties and graces and comforts. If Paul had not attained to perfection, much less have we. Those who think they have grace enough give proof that they have little enough, or rather that they have none at all. Because wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace and the pressing towards the perfection of grace. See, it's necessary for us to constantly remain in a teachable state. It's necessary for us to remain in a hungry state. We talked about that earlier today. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty for more of God? Number three, hunger and a longing for more of God is an evidence that there is a growing relationship with God. Because Paul said, And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. See, for a person to claim that they have a relationship with God, for a person to claim it and to prove it, there must be a hunger for God. Now, this person may have some spurts here and there, and they may have some forward progress a little bit at a time. But they can lose it. They can lose it if you don't use it. Your life, if that's the kind of life you're in, if you grow by spurts and then fall back on your laurels, grow by spurts and fall back on your history, grow a little bit here but lose a a little bit there, your life will be marked as a roller coaster. You will be up and you'll be down, up and down, and your life will be very unsettling for you and for everyone around you. A good indicator for you and I this morning to know, to know if you are clearly pressing on. Are you truly pressing on to the future? Your indicator is are you hungry? Are you hungry for God? Are you hungry for praise and worship in your life? Are you hungry for good Bible teaching? Are you hungry? Does that become a priority in your life? Getting into a good Bible study, is that a priority? I can't wait for Wednesday nights. I can't wait for Sunday school. I can't wait for church on Sunday mornings. I can't wait when I have my Bible study personally. I can't wait. That's an indicator if you're pressing in. But if you're not indicating, if your indicators don't say something, then you're probably not doing something. Rick, as a pilot, you know how important it is to trust the instruments. You go up in a bad weather, you go up in the clouds, and if your instruments are saying you're climbing, but your butt feels you're you're diving, what are you going to believe, Rick? Yeah. And if you don't believe your instruments, you're on the road to destruction. JFK Jr. (laughs) Guys, the instruments of God's word are clear to us. Are you listening? Are you watching the indicators of your life? If you're not hungry, can I say that you're not progressing? If you're not spiritually thirsty, can I challenge you in your life this morning as a loving man that wants nothing more for you than to be in the gates of heaven alongside of me to say, time to do some evaluation. Jackie, would you come? And we'll begin to conclude this. But how do we press on? How do we press on? We press on by determining in our heart to allow the power of the Holy Spirit within us to help us. I can't do this alone, and neither can you. This isn't about us picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. This isn't about how good a person I can be and how good a person you can be. I press on to take hold of what Christ Jesus took hold of me for. Christ took hold of me first and recognizing that Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. It's his desire. Listen to me. So important. It's his desire that I live for him more than my desire. Do you know that? He loves you so much. It's his desire to press on. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him. And he in them. Jesus lives in me. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. He gives evidence in our life that we're pressing on. We're pressing on. So this morning, as we end the service this morning, can I ask you this morning, are you pressing on toward the goal with the evidence of hunger, the evidence of thirst, All eyes closed, please, as we take some time to evaluate this. All eyes closed, please. This morning, if you're struggling in the area of hunger and thirst, and you want to be hungry and thirsty, do you know that the Lord wants you to be too? And if you will just raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm struggling in this area of thirst in my life. I want to be thirsty. I want to be hungry. I see the hands. I see eyes closed, please. I see the hands. Be honest. Come on, this is the time to be honest. Be honest. I'll tell you, I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting this week. And the level of, not, not because I'm an alcoholic, I went as a guest. But to tell you, the level of honesty and integrity I saw in a meeting like that puts churches to shame. It puts churches to shame. Because you know what? I'll be very honest here. I would When I look at my life, I don't know that I'm hungry enough. If I'm truly hungry, then I am going to come to the table every time I have opportunity to. I'm never going to leave the table if I'm hungry. Church like this, guys, is so unique because no place else in the world do you have opportunities to be like this. And if we're not falling at the table, if we're not saying, God, make me hungrier, then i got to wonder, am I truly progressing? So can I ask the question one more time? And I'm not looking for a show of hands just because it makes me feel good about this message. But I want you to know, are you truly hungry for Jesus?